You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, the future of research publishing. The BMJ recently hosted a round table to probe the topic, but firstly, what the UK government thinks. For the last year, a working group set up by the Minister of State for Universities and Science, David Willits, have been looking into how to make published research freely available to anyone who wants to read it. Our editor, Fiona Godley, discussed their recommendations with Dame Janet Finch, the group's chair. Dame Janet, welcome. Thank you. This is a report that many people have been waiting for and delighted to see it out. Could you just give us uh, your view on why this is necessary to discuss now? Why now? Yes, well, it's an issue that's been around for a while and the significance of it has been emerging gradually. I think essentially um, it's necessary to think very carefully about how we can bring research findings and the publication of research findings into the same framework that we um, all expect to be able to operate when we access knowledge of other sorts. So we all expect that knowledge is going to be available instantly on our desktop when we want it um, and easily available and probably for free, ideally. And that's the, that's and, the rub. Yeah, exactly. And research doesn't meet those criteria at the moment for a variety of very good reasons. Do you think that research is in a separate category to other types of knowledge? I mean, obviously, knowledge costs money to generate, but, but is there a sense in which research is in its own category as opposed to other types of information? Well, it is um, in the sense that um, research has been paid for in some way, um, either directly through research project grant or indirectly very often through the support of uh, the researchers, if a researcher works for a university, through the support of their salary. And most of that money comes from either charitable sources or very large significant parts of it um, from the taxpayer. And so the main reason why government has been interested in this issue, which others in the research world have been interested in for a long time, is because they have more generally a transparency agenda of making information and data free and open to the general public. Particularly if the taxpayer has paid, um, government feels, as I understand it, that taxpayers ought to have access to it without having to pay for to buy a subscription journal, for example. And really, if I understand it, you went into this report or, or the government commissioned it on the basis that open access is the answer. Is that fair? Not quite. Um, our remit was to advise on how access to published research findings, so this is only published research findings, not the data that arises from research, could be expanded. There wasn't a presumption that there was just one way of expanding it. And indeed, we've argued that there isn't just one way and that we need a mixed economy. But the task that we were set really was based on the assumption that it is a good objective to enable not only researchers, but anybody who wishes to make use of research, to enable people to access that easily and without paying. So that was a starting point. Our task really was to work out how it can be done. So tell us a quick summary of, of the how then. A quick summary of the how. Well, 
We think that there are several different ways in which research can be made available more freely than it is now. And certainly in the first instance, there needs to be a mixed economy there. And we need to make changes carefully in the sense that we have to make sure that we don't do collateral damage, if I may put it that way, to other things that are really important. So we mustn't make changes that do that damage the quality of UK research, which is outstanding. All the um, very important process of peer review and the whole way in which the standards of published research are maintained through that. There is no merit in seeking to damage the publishing industry, which is a success story in this country. And of course, quite significant parts of the publishing industry are not for profit publications by learned societies who uh, rely to some extent on publication income for other activities. So we think that for some time to come, there will be a mixed economy where essentially the two main forms of publication will coexist side by side. So this is open access with an author fee of some sort yes. and a subscription model where the, the reader or the institution pays. That's right. That's right. And we think that they will and should coexist, but that in the longer term, the government and other relevant parties should set a policy direction in the direction of open access, meaning, as you say, that um, instead of the publication process being funded by subscriptions to journals paid by the reader or paid by a library on behalf of the reader, the publication process is funded by payments upfront by the author paid, just to be clear, when an article is accepted. Now, critics of open access, of, of whom there are many, uh, including those in the publishing industry, but, but also in academia, uh, say that we're talking here about vanity publishing, that the, the shift of emphasis moves from the reader, uh, providing information of use to the reader, to the author, mm-hmm. simply uh, encouraging them to publish mm-hmm. their work, regardless of its value. How, how do you think that, that, that new models can ensure that that isn't the case? Well, I mentioned that one of the things that we have to protect is peer review. All our recommendations have incorporated the assumption that high-quality peer review must continue to be an absolutely fundamental component of academic publishing. And, of course, the publishing industry then says, well, how do, how do we fund that? And I know your report has a great deal of, about mm. the, the costs of this and, and the relative benefits of, of, of paying for subscriptions versus author fees. Can you um, talk about how you think the economics will work? Well, it is turning the subscription model 180 degrees, if you like, uh, putting is turning it upside down. The actual level of author payments, of course, is something which is um, ultimately going to be a market, just as subscriptions to journals are a market. And we can't predict with any degree of accuracy what the total picture will be in five years' time in terms of the level of payments. But in principle... The publication process is funded now by subscriptions. If there's a bigger shift to open access, it should be funded by author payments. They must cover high-quality peer review, just in the same way that they do now. Hmm. And, and the money would then come from the research funders 
and from, from other sources as well? Yes, an essential component of this is that the money flows differently around the system, if you like. At the moment, it flows in one particular way with research funders paying for research, universities paying library uh, subscriptions with money that actually probably ultimately could be traced back to research funds in some way or other. The trick is to be able to have a new way of money flowing around the system. And the essential component there is that research funders do acknowledge that the costs of publication are part of what they pay for when they fund research. This is already happening, particularly in this country, by the Wellcome Trust, who already have for several years um, on funded uh, publication on that exactly that basis. And we believe that other research funders need to follow that lead. So you, you have come to the view in your report that in the short term it will cost more, but in the long term it will be cost neutral. How long a transition period do you think we're looking at and what amount of money are we talking about in that period? Um, well, the, the amount of money in the transition period is actually linked to the length of time. And this is where we need to bring in the fact that academic publishing is an international activity, to state the obvious. This country produces about 6% of the world's published articles. So there's 94% that we don't produce. It will be more expensive for us if the rest of the world is rather slow in moving in the same direction. I mean, we do expect that this will grow anyway, whatever happens. But we have estimated that during a transition period, that something in the order of between 50 and 60 million pounds a year additional cost. For understandable reasons, commercial publishers and society publishers are very anxious about the impact of open access on their business. Do you feel they have nothing to fear or do you think they face a very uncertain future? Well, I'm not a publisher, so it's a bit difficult for me to tell them they have nothing to fear. But I recognise that there are already some very successful open access publishers in the system and worldwide about 10%. It's obviously possible to have a business model based on open access, which is successful. But it is one of the reasons why we think that there needs to be a transition period where the two coexist. And I think there may be a particular problem for the uh, learned societies who were publishing on a not-for-profit basis, and they need time to adjust to a different environment. We're talking here, aren't we, just about the findings of research, the published findings. There's an enormous push, as you'll be aware, certainly in clinical medicine, uh, and the BMJ is is part of this push to get the data themselves into the public domain. Do you feel we're a long way from that? Does your report give any hope for those of us who'd like to see more of that? We we don't touch on that because it wasn't part of our remit. Our remit was explicitly about the peer-reviewed published findings of research. That is partly because I think we were all aware that there was a significantly parallel exercise being undertaken by the Royal Society who are publishing it this afternoon. That's right. I was going to ask you about that. Have you read the report? No. No, so you can't comment, no. nor have I. So. No, but I'm going straight to the launch now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
yeah. Great. That seems to be, uh, you know, next important step. Yes, and Abs- yes. They are different issues. They are different issues, and they raise different different sorts of challenges. But the two stem from a similar kind of um, impetus, if you like, to get access to knowledge more widely and freely. You're a researcher by background and you've been a vice-chancellor of a university. Mm. What was it uh, that most surprised you in digging into this uh, rather esoteric part of the publishing world? Um, I think what surprised me is that there are people with very strong views and strong commitments to various different uh, versions of what should happen. And I don't think I'd expected just quite the strength of feeling that some people have. And I I respect it, actually, because it really shows that there's a huge commitment to getting knowledge out there. But how it can be done is something that people don't agree about. Dame Janet Finch, thank you very much. Thank you. And since we recorded that interview, the Royal Society report on access to scientific data, titled Science as an Open Enterprise, has been made available. For details on their conclusions, take a look at the report on the Society's website and the BMJ have an editorial in the pipeline on the issues it raises. We have so much content on the web. There is no way for everybody to read everything related to their field before they die. So we heard from Ian Mulvaney, Vice President for New Product Development at Mendeley, when the BMJ hosted a roundtable to discuss the future of academic publishing. The discussion was wide-ranging, so here are a few highlights from it. Ian Mulvaney continued by talking about tools that would make a researcher's life easier. Every journal is now publishing more content than it has ever published before. Uh, There is more data available. There are more opportunities to draw our attention away from the the tasks at hand. But we have technological solutions, and as an industry, we should be looking to create things that help reduce the fear in our users. I really believe that. And I think so far, much of the conversation has focused around content distribution and making the content work better and pushing more content into people's hands. But how do we make that researcher reduce their fear that they're not getting the content that they need at the right moment? What is it the journals are doing digitally now to enhance the experience of researchers and readers? And I don't think they're doing very much. I really don't. I think that so far journals have have failed to embrace the kind of tools and experiences that the web can offer to to users and to readers. I feel that the thing that journals should be doing is creating resources that are are good digital citizens on the web, not just things that work well within the silo of your own publication outlet. Uh, If I were to ask you, uh, if, if a researcher had the choice for PubMed to disappear or for the BMJ to disappear, which do you, do you think they would choose? And the reason is that much of the profit that has come from the publishing industry so far has come because people in the publishing industry have thought about their journal as a silo. They've had effective monopolistic control of the content that goes on there. But the researchers themselves need to see across those silos. Some of the reasons why we've had success at Mendeley is we allow people to aggregate content across many different sources. And what we do with those pieces of content is... We can look into everybody's library, which is composed of articles from many different journals, from many different locations, and we can generate Amazon-like recommendations of content that can be pushed back to that user. 
This is the kind of thing that a single journal can't do at the moment because journals don't have access to the content from other journals, unless you move into an open access world, of course. And I highly recommend, I, I highly commend BMJ for their, their work in this. Mendeley, as you heard, is a new company which helps researchers get to the information they need. Also at the roundtable was Ellen Collins from the Research Information Network, who echoed Ian's ideas. They want something that they can see how it's going to make their lives easier. Um, And one very important thing here is this idea of information overload, and researchers undoubtedly do feel a bit daunted by the amount of information that's out there and the number of platforms that it's spread across. So they want tools that will help them to manage that more effectively and to feel that they're seeing stuff that's important and that they're not being bombarded with a whole bunch of things that are not important to them. They want tools that they can trust, tools that are kind of associated with a brand that they recognise, and I think that's something that journals have that's very strong in this arena, that, you know, trusted sources of information um, with a quality guarantee associated with that. They want tools that they can use anywhere and everywhere. Most researchers now do most of their reading outside of the lab or the library. They read on devices, they read on Kindles, ebooks, they read on iPads, a lot of them read on their smartphones, which is always really surprising to me because I think that must be an incredibly difficult format to read on, but they do. Um, so they want a tool that, that, that won't just sit on their, their search bar on their browser, they want it to be an app for whatever platform they're using, they want it to function. And an important part of that is access of passwords. They don't want to have to go through five or six different sets of passwords to get at the content they need, um, and they don't want to have lots of different passwords for all the different platforms that they use. Um, So again, we come back to that idea of working across platforms and not having these sort of barriers put up. Researchers want, I'm coming to the end now, but researchers want tools that allow them to do more with the content that they've got access to. Um, Things like data mining, um, markup, annotations is huge. They, They, a lot of them now read almost exclusively on screen, but they say it's it's, it's very hard to read on screen and then make notes. If you've got a, you can't highlight, um, you can't scribble in the margins. And so you've got this weird situation where you have your article and then you have your written notes on a piece of paper or in a text file or something. Um, and that's one of the biggest things they ask for. And I think that's a big opportunity for journals, actually, if you think about the enormous amount of data you could generate by allowing people to mark up the articles that you hold. Um, that then again becomes um, a resource that, subject to their permission or their, their, their uh, confidence, you can start to share, you can allow them to share their notes and comments, and, and it, become, it all becomes part of a more of a network that, again, will draw them in and make them feel, well, this is the platform that I use for most of my research work now because it lets me do so many different things that I want to do as a researcher. It wasn't just tools that occupied minds at the meeting. Data also came top of the list, As you'll have heard before on the podcast, we at the BMJ want to publish data. But what should we do with it? You should be looking to to link to data, which I know you're beginning to do. That's an awesome thing. But that data then, it's possible to give experiences around that data that enable people to interact with it in real time. Um, There are some wonderful JavaScript frameworks coming around that enable people to actually pull sliders and see graphs change in real time if the underlying data is available. I don't know if that's the remit of the publisher to provide that as an experience, but certainly making that data available will enable others to provide that as an experience. Though it's desirable to publish data, 
that doesn't always happen. The BMJ Group uses Dryad to host data from our publications and Heather Pivovar from the company was at the conference. She talked about the reticence of some authors to give away their data sets. Uh, researchers don't rush to, to submit their data. Um, and I think the problem is that the benefits are to society at large, but the costs are to the individual investigator. That's why, right? They, there's very little in it for them in an upfront way to make their data available, and there's a lot of cost for them in an upfront way. There's the cost in terms of time and money to, to do the actual submission right then, and then there's the, I think, even bigger and more important costs about fear that someone else would do the research that they plan to do uh, using their data and they won't get adequate credit for it. That someone else would do research they didn't plan to do but get more more credit than they get. Um, That someone will find mistakes in what they've done. That they'll be embarrassed because their data spreadsheets aren't as professional looking as people might assume they are. I think all of those are very real costs and I think think the only two ways to address that are are really serious incentives for the individual author on the order of citations or but I don't think that's going to do it I think it really needs to be by moving uh, the floor of what we expect from one another um, and that it's just expected that it that it's done and I think that's the real way that that will make a difference and we'll leave this segment with the last word from Virginia Barber chief editor of PLOS Medicine we've come across this time and time again that actually researchers uh, Academic researchers, their data is in terrible shape. I mean, really terrible shape. And if there's one thing I would, you know, applaud, for example, the pharmaceutical industry for in this case, is their data is generally in jolly good shape. And I think there's a lot that academic researchers could could learn from from industry in in making sure their data is uh, uh, kind of good enough to use. Anikit Travara has written up that discussion into a BMJ feature. So take a look at that for more of the issues raised. That's all for this week. Join us next time when I hear about a new model for public health and Mabel Chu gets some clinical advice on post-traumatic stress disorder. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.